quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I will welcome to First Move and a globe-galloping show for you this hour, including the race to beat the debt ceiling clock, the U.S. state of Montana voting to ban TikTok, the G7 hoping its alliance remains solid as a rock ahead of talks tackling the Ukraine war economic shock. But first, signs that a debt ceiling deal is moving closer, triggering a mid-May bullish stock display on Wednesday with all the major averages up more than 1%. The best one-day rally for the S&P, in fact, in two weeks. More cautious trade today, though, but European stocks are rallying. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy raising hopes by saying a debt agreement is possible by the weekend. President Biden also confident of a compromise. The problem is they still have to meet in the middle and both be able to say they won. That's politics. Remember, too, a rally now also limits the market upside once a deal, assuming it does, finally getting done. From the debt ceiling smiles to retail store aisles, the largest U.S. retailer, Walmart, reporting better than expected earnings and raising its full-year outlook. Food sales strong, but consumers pulling back on big-ticket items like electronics. Chinese retail giant Alibaba also posting a revenue miss, but its shares set to rise more than 1% in early trade on news that it plans to spin off its cloud division, also a juggernaut. Important context for our conversation, too, with the president of the e-commerce platform Shopify, who's been tracking the global growth of global entrepreneurs. That's coming up later on in the program. And Asian markets in the spotlight too, as Japan gets set to host the summit of G7 nations. Green arrows, as you can see there, across the board with the Nikkei rallying more than one and a half percent. In fact, the benchmark Japanese stock index riding a six session winning streak and is now up 17 percent year to date. The broader topics index hitting 33 year highs. I think that's a reflection of the upbeat outlook for profits, rock bottom interest rates, of course, and a noticeable, noticeable pickup in inflation and throw in investor friendly corporate governance reforms. There's a whole bag of items there that are driving that, I think. Compare, though, and contrast with the mood in China. The US dollar trading near six month highs against the Chinese yuan on concerns that the Chinese recovery may be spluttering. And China, just one of the topics to be discussed at the G7 leaders meeting this week, alongside, of course, the drive for greater security in the Indo-Pacific region. And as we've mentioned, the war in Ukraine. And officials there say air defense systems intercepted 29 missiles launched by Russia overnight. This after China's special envoy wrapped up a two-day visit to Kyiv, meeting with President Zelensky. Sam Kiley has all the details. In the latest moves in Crimea, there has been the derailment of an important train link uh, between two major towns in the Russian-occupied uh, peninsula that the Russians captured in 2014 and later illegally annexed. It is very much part of, or rather the heart of, uh, the military effort uh, against Ukraine. Uh, from which a large number of attacks have been launched. So the Ukrainians are saying that the 
uh, railway uh, seems to have got exhausted and uh, had some kind of natural collapse. This is a typical tongue-in-cheek response that the Ukrainians have developed to uh, any kind of allegations that they've conducted special forces raids or long-range attacks behind the Russian lines, particularly inside Russia itself, but also behind the lines in Russian-held uh, occupy parts of Ukraine. But this is just the latest attack, which wears away on the Russian ability to uh, re re reinforce its frontline positions, wears away too on the fighting spirit, the Ukrainians hope, of the Russian soldiers. But the Russians have been doing their own uh, offensives. They're continuing to conduct offensives, according to the Wagner mercenary group, inside the city of Bakhmut. The Ukrainians are saying that they're managing to uh, flank those uh, operational activities of uh, Wagner inside the city, both to the north and the south, uh, with uh, also claiming advances there. And at the same time, of course, in the air, the battle continues. Uh, last night, there were some 30 missiles, the Ukrainians say, fired against uh, various locations across the country. 29, they say, shot down. One may have got through, or the debris thereof got through and landed in an industrial area in the southern city of Odessa, killing one person. But clearly the Russians are continuing their camp campaign to try to soak up as much of Ukraine's air defences as they can ahead of an anticipated Ukrainian ground offensive. Sam Kali there and very much tied to what he was saying. U.S. officials say damage to the Patriot missiles defence system was minimal following Russia's attack near Kyiv earlier this week. But Russia's state television is telling a very different story. CNN's Matthew Chance has more on Moscow's information war. It's state television where Russia fights its information war. The lead story, the US Patriot missile battery. Russia insists it destroyed in Kiev. US officials tell CNN the system remains operational, but this is too rare a victory for the pro-Kremlin media to play down. The much-promoted Patriot was destroyed by Kinjals, the presenter gloats. Our hypersonic missiles were so fast, they cut through Ukraine's air defences like a knife through butter, she adds. As for the six hypersonic missiles, Ukraine says it shot down. A fantasy number, the presenter says, and more than we actually fired. A senior Ukrainian official now tells CNN only minor damage was caused to the Patriot air defence system when one of the Kinjals was shot down at low altitude on Tuesday morning. The official said the US-made system will be repaired soon and an investigation is now underway into how the Patriot was targeted. Elsewhere, Ukraine says small advances have been made around Bakhmut, these night images appear to show an armoured push in the fields outside. But Russian state television is in the city, touring devastated front lines under constant fire with Wagner mercenaries who say they're confident they will prevail. We will take Bakhmut eventually, this Wagner commander tells the Russian TV crew following him around. But at what cost, we don't know, he admits. 
Another says they're shelling us from afar because they can't defeat us in close combat. We're too strong, he says. Ukrainian officials confirm fierce fighting in the city, captured on this latest drone video. Areas of Bakhmut suburbs devastated, but now being liberated, the Ukrainians say. And back on Russian TV, there's growing acceptance that what was meant as a short offensive in Ukraine has spiralled out of control, exposing weaknesses and divisions in the country. It's not a special military operation, says this guest on state television, but a fateful war that Russians must win or face destruction. As Ukraine prepares for a counter-offensive to reclaim occupied land, it seems Russia is also bracing for a fight. Matthew Chance, CNN London. And on the eve of the G7 summit, President Joe Biden met with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. In a bilateral meeting earlier, the president emphasized America's close relationship with Japan and with China's growing military and economic might. As you said back in January when you were at the White House, I think the quote is, we faced the most, one of the most complex environments in recent history, security environments. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. But I'm proud that the United States and Japan are facing it together. And, uh, you know, we stand up for the shared values, including supporting the brave people of Ukraine as they defend their sovereign territory and holding Russia accountable for its brutal aggression. Mark Stewart joins us now. Mark, so many important issues to discuss. The Ukraine war, broader Indo-Pacific security, uh, China, of course, and, and what's taking place there with, with Taiwan. And yet the president cannot avoid questions that impact everyone at that table, which is whether or not the United States is going to see a debt ceiling breach. It's sort of embarrassing. The debt ceiling doubt, no question, Julia, is something that the president just cannot avoid. It's the reason why he cut his visit short to both Australia and New Guinea. But as you and many, your de- many, as you and many of your guests have discussed in recent weeks, a debt default in the U.S. would not only be harmful to the U.S. economy, could, but it could have catastrophic uh, side effects for really the rest of the world and the broader economy. And no matter what the G7 would like to discuss, it really could create a lot of hardship. So that is why the president is delaying or at least canceling this portion of the trip to to Australia and to New Guinea. But on the topic of the debt ceiling, uh, it is something that will likely come up for conversation when President Biden meets with these various world leaders tomorrow here in Hiroshima. They are expected to ask him some questions and he will be expected to give some answers. With that said, we have heard for lack of better words, some empathy from the Australian prime minister who said he understood why the president had to make that decision. And it's not as if he won't meet with the leaders of the so-called quad, Australia, uh, Japan, uh, India. They will all have attendance, even though they're not all necessarily formal members of the G7. They will be there. So there will be some discussions. But as you just mentioned, a whole list of important issues that also need to be discussed. Certainly, Ukraine. And on the economic front, that will be a big part of the discussion. Right now, we still see Europe exporting items to to uh, to Ukraine or to to Russia. 
we see uh, Japan importing gas from Russia. That's going to be something to see if that is restricted even further. And then, of course, this broader issue of China. What kind of statement will we get from the G7, if any? Uh, A lot of these countries do have an economic stake in the Chinese economy and may not want to rock the boat so much. But uh, there could be issues about, uh, about, about potential sanctions as well as economic coercion. We'll have to see on that. And finally, Julia, you talk a lot about artificial intelligence on your program. That, I am told, is also going to be on these G7 discussions. Yeah, fascinating. I can't wait to see what comes from that. But I also love your point about sanctions. And um, you can make a a great show of solidarity. But if people are still purchasing items from from Russia, then they're still arguably contributing to financing of the war. We'll discuss that later on in the show. For now, Mark, thank you. Great to have you with us. Mark Stewart there. Now, a very costly joke. Police in China launching an investigation into a comedian over a line he used on stage. The stand-up comic known as House referenced a slogan originally used by President Xi to describe the prowess of the Chinese army. An entertainment firm that hired him has been hit with a $2 million fine. And we believe a woman who appeared to defend him online has also been arrested. Christy Lou Stout joins us now. Um, I think it underscores, first and foremost, the delicate line that comedians have to tread when content is so heavily scrutinized and censored in China. Christy, what exactly did he say? What was so bad about what he said? You know, it was just eight words, Julia, eight words of a well-known PLA slogan that was delivered as part of his stand-up set in Beijing on Saturday night. This Chinese comic who goes by the word house in English, his Chinese name is Li Haoshi. He riffed on that slogan that was used in the past by the Chinese leader Xi Jinping. He made this joke about watching his two rescue dogs, his two rescued stray dogs go chase a squirrel. And it reminded him of that slogan that Xi Jinping used to praise the work ethic of the People's Liberation Army. Now the joke, it went online, it went viral. And then on Wednesday, Beijing police launched an investigation and authorities, they also fined the company that represents him nearly two million U.S. dollars. And we heard this. Let's bring up the statement for you from the Beijing Municipal Bureau of Culture and Tourism saying, quote, we will never allow any company or individual to wantonly slander the glorious image of the People's Liberation Army on a stage in the Chinese capital, unquote. Uh, The bureau also added that the company would never be allowed to stage any future shows in Beijing, The company, which earlier apologized, has fired the comedian. The comedian, he himself, has apologized profusely online. Now, in China, any insults against the military are illegal. In fact, a couple of years ago, that was when China passed a law banning insults or slander against the military. And right now, in the last couple of days on social media, people, some of them are praising the government's decision. They said, hey, this joke crossed a line. It was an insult. But there are others who are fearing a wider crackdown on comedy in China. And it's easy to see why. In fact, we just learned that a woman in northeastern China was detained by police after defending the comedian on social media. So, Julia, you know, the fallout here is far reaching. Back to you. Yeah, humor is a luxury, it seems, in, yeah. a, in a command economy. Yeah, high price to pay. Christy, great to have you with us. Thank you. Christy Lee out there. Now, Montana has become the first U.S. state to ban TikTok, not just for state employees, but for everyone. 
The governor signing the bill into law, which comes into effect in January of next year. He's highlighting privacy concerns tied to the Chinese-owned platform. Omar Jimenez has all the details. Omar, great to have you on the show. What's the reaction been? Of course. Well, the reaction uh, is from TikTok specifically has been very swift. They, of course, are against this action. But as you mentioned, Montana becoming the first state in the United States to ban TikTok and literally it would be prohibited from operating within the state lines. And the short of the concern is it's all over perceived security concerns. So ByteDance is, owns TikTok. That's a Chinese-based uh, company, ByteDance is. And so U.S. officials are concerned that the Chinese government could access users data through ByteDance and through TikTok. And you see some of those concerns with the governor of Montana tweeting specifically that to protect Montanans' personal and private data uh, from the Chinese Communist Party, I have banned TikTok in Montana. And so, you know, you see some politics in there, of course. But ByteDance did fire employees last year, two of which were based in China for what they say was improperly accessing personal data of multiple U.S.-based journalists. A BuzzFeed News report last year also highlighted that some Chinese employees had access to U.S. data. Now, TikTok is saying that they've made some internal changes. And this time around, and always, there's no public evidence Beijing has systematically been accessing this data. But TikTok is out with a statement in response to the Montana ban saying that this this is a this infringes on the First Amendment rights of the people of Montana, that we want to reassure Montanans that they can continue using TikTok to express themselves, earn a living and find community as we continue working to defend the rights of our users inside and outside of Montana. And he testified on Capitol Hill here in the U.S. and Washington, D.C. back in March that all of these concerns are based on hypothetical scenarios. Again, that systematic uh, access to user data. Um, and we've seen Montana joins now the more than half of U.S. states that have banned TikTok on government issued devices. But of course, this one is the most strict of them all, extending to an outright ban on TikTok. That law goes into effect in January. Yeah, it's funny that, that you chose to respond in terms of what TikTok thinks. I was thinking about what about the users of TikTok? Oh, How yeah. Well, are they? The, oh, my goodness. The users can't be happy Look, about it either. I, know. <laughs> I think it's about a fifth of the population. Good I luck know. with that, my friend. I suppose most of them I know. Can't and vote. by the way, I will yes. say that January is a long way away. I can't imagine this won't go without any lawsuits mm -hmm. from, from some of those users. Conquer. So we will see. We shall see. <laughs> Omar, thank you for that. Okay, straight ahead. A show of unity in Hiroshima. G7 leaders gearing up for talks covering Russia's war and China's growing influence. We'll discuss with Sheila Smith from the Council on Foreign Relations after this. Welcome back to First Move and Eyes on Hiroshima ahead of the G7 leaders meeting set to begin on Friday. The summit from the world's leading democracies is expected to focus on the war in Ukraine and how to counter China's growing influence around the world. At a bilateral meeting earlier Thursday, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida told U.S. President Joe Biden that the cooperation between their two countries has evolved by leaps and bounds. Quote, and joining us now is Sheila Smith. She's the John E. Merrow Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Sheila, great to have you with us on the show. Um, I love the way that you described the meeting between these two leaders, and you described it as an opportunity to bask in multilateral <laughs> momentum. 
Describe what you mean, because Kishida certainly put in a lot of geographical legwork ahead of this meeting. That's right, Julia. It's great to be with you. So the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has been a very active uh, diplomat, statesman of late, and especially in the G7 context. So you've seen him just this year travel to Europe to meet with leaders there, come here to North America to meet with the Canadian Prime Minister and obviously the U.S. President Joe Biden. He has a lot at stake in the success of this meeting, but also in making sure that the world understands Japan's commitment to multilateralism. And you'll hear that in his language. You'll see it, I think, in the G7 statement that will be issued. There's a lot on the table here uh, for, at, you know, in terms of not only Ukraine, but also obviously in the Indo-Pacific, concerns about China and Chinese behavior. And of course, the G7 is an economic gathering as well. So the spillover effects of the global economy of the conflict in Europe is also on the prime minister's mind. Yeah, and also taking the time to visit nations in the global south to travel to India to understand what they're thinking ahead of this too, which I, you point out and I think is vitally important. Some part of this conversation, I'm sure too, is going to look at the impact of sanctions on Russia. And I just wanted to get your take on this because certainly we've seen Canada's a great example, voicing their concerns about seafood purchases for example, right. by Japan from Russia and saying, look, we've got seafood ourselves. You can come to us. This idea that they may be talking about um, sort of consolidation and collectivity where the response to Russia is concerned, but at the same time still helping them finance the war. That's right. And I think this is where you're going to see some of the underlying currents at the G7 uh, on the Russian sanctions. Europe, of course, has paid the highest cost in terms of energy and, and, and other impacts to the European economies. Canada now speaking out, as you point out, Japan is in deep proximity, right? Do we forget that Japan's northern border uh, <laughs> is actually a maritime border with Russia? And so oil, uh, gas, and as you noted, the seafood uh, industry relies heavily on that relationship with Russia. So Japan has been slow in some ways compared to other G7 countries, but nonetheless has taken steps that would have not been conceivable, you know, five to 10 years ago. Yeah, timber would be the other one, but your point about the border is, right. um, yes, well taken. Um, Indo-Pacific security, uh, mm. Prime Minister Kishida's openly said, look, um, what we're seeing right now in Ukraine could very easily happen in this region, given the tensions that we see in particular, I think, between China and Taiwan. It's a, arguably a more difficult conversation having that with the European leaders, perhaps, than it is with U.S. President Joe Biden, given the obvious stance, I think, that the French leader took when he was just recently in Beijing, even the German chancellor, where they've said, look, we need our own path for tackling China. And we sort of need that relationship in light of the loss of, of Russia. That's right. And I think, Julia, that's where you put, really put your finger on, again, what some of the, the challenges will be for that G7 joint statement that will be coming out at the end. France and Germany in particular have made their positions clear that their economies are suffering because of Russian sanctions and have you know, been fairly explicit to say, China, you can't ask us to stop our, our deep economic engagement with China. But I think for the Japanese, they also have deep economic engagement with China. And I think that's an important piece to remember. I think what the Japanese prime minister and perhaps President Biden is also looking for is a statement that undermining the status quo by aggression 
unilaterally by force, as the Russians did in Ukraine, is not to be tolerated. It's a global norm. So whatever the specifics about Taiwan that European leaders feel they can or cannot sign on to, I think that general principle of international politics, our post-war norm, uh, that you cannot take a sovereign country's territory by force, that's the statement diplomatically, I think, that both the U.S. president and the Japanese prime minister will be looking for. Yeah, the question is how much can they push uh, the Chinese leader perhaps to um, follow their own principles for finding some kind of solution here? And because they, they actually mentioned that point. Um, I want to get your take as well on the perhaps thawing of relations is not the right way to phrase it, but the better relations between South Korea and Japan at this moment and the sort of trifecta of the United States, South Korea and Japan on this, but beyond too in the region. Yes, Julie, I'm glad you brought that up because we were very focused on the multilateral setting and the joint statement that will be coming out of the G7. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's all kinds of meetings going on on the sidelines. And that's, I think, the focal point for me anyway. I'll be watching very closely. There is going to be a trilateral leading, leaders meeting between President Yoon of South Korea, President Biden and Prime Minister Kishida. I expect there have been bilateral summits back and forth between uh, South Korean and Japanese leaders. So President Yoon went to Tokyo. Uh, Prime Minister Kishida went to Seoul uh, very recently. And so the expectation here is you're going to get a statement from the three leaders on the deeper cooperation on North Korea and on deterrence, on an extended deterrent preparedness steps, radar, other kinds of systemic uh, cooperation. I don't know how far it's going to go, but I'm expecting a fairly significant statement of security cooperation from that trilateral. Fantastic. We'll look out for that, too. Um, We can't leave this conversation without talking about the significance of the location of this meeting, too, particularly amid the concerns of what we're hearing from countries like Iran, from North Korea and their efforts with with nuclear proliferation. What do you expect to see? I know peace parks potentially on the agenda here just to underscore the need to to remain focused so on the, this. The, the location of Hiroshima is, of course, really important for ja- the Japanese public. It's particularly personally important for the prime minister who came, who comes from that region. His family members were in, there on, on the day of the atomic bombing. It is something he speaks of uh, frequently, that as a, as a member, as a person from Hiroshima, he feels compelled to continue to raise the issue and to advocate for a world without nuclear weapons. What I think is going to be interesting to watch is the leaders will go to the Peace Park. Uh, There will be a statement made. um, And with this context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and President Putin's sort of coercion, if you will, nuclear coercion statement that he's willing to raise uh, the threshold of violence, if necessary, to the nuclear level. I think this is going to be an interesting moment where the G7 leaders can talk about once more mitigating the risk of the use of those weapons in a conflict. So I, again, this is an important moment for the prime minister, not only personally, but for Japan as well, to remind the world uh, of there is a red line. There is not only a, a, a political red line, but a moral red line that they don't want to see crossed. Yeah. And it's all about, to your point, what we get in the statements and perhaps reading between those lines, too. And uh, thanks to you, we are well prepared. (laughs) Sheila Smith from the Council on Foreign Relations. Really, really great to chat to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks are up and running for the Thursday session. And it is a softer picture overall. Consolidation, perhaps we can call it that, after a broad-braced rally on Wednesday, driven by hopes 
for a debt ceiling agreement. More on that in just a moment. In the meantime, Walmart, an early session winner after posting better than expected profits and sales. That's the largest U.S. retailer also raising its full year guidance, too, thanks in part to strong growth in its grocery and online divisions. And the threat that new technology poses to jobs firmly in the spotlight today, too. UK telecoms giant BT Group announcing that it's cutting some 55,000 jobs by the year 2030. It's looking to cut costs and make greater use of artificial intelligence, which is set to replace thousands of positions. Wow, it's the first real sign that we've heard of that. Now, before leaving for Japan, President Biden told reporters he'll be in, quote, constant contact with his team negotiating with Congress over the debt ceiling debate and with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, too. Of course, time is running out to raise the borrowing limit ahead of June 1st. That's the earliest date the Treasury Department estimates the United States will run out of money to pay its bills and then sets it on the path to triggering a catastrophic default, which means not paying interest on debt. The, the technical definition is important. Arlette Sines joins us now from the White House. I don't want to make light of it, Arlette, but I do think we're going to get to a stage where we both feel like Groundhog Day when we talk about this on a daily basis. Are we closer than we were yesterday and closer than we were after the weekend? Well, we're closer, one closer day to that potential X date. <laughs> Great um, answer. As early as June 1st, uh, yes. when the Treasury has warned that they could potentially uh, default on their debts. But look, President Biden is overseas right now in Japan for the G7 summit. While back here in Washington, the work is continuing with his negotiators meeting once again up on Capitol Hill with the representative for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Now, uh, both sides still remain incredibly far apart, but you have seen this commitment uh, from each side to try to engage in these negotiations in earnest. A bit earlier today, uh, the president's uh, spokesperson for the National Security Council, John Kirby, said that the president ultimately felt it was the best use of his time to return early from this foreign trip. He'll be canceling that Australia and Papua New Guinea portion, but he does plan on being updated throughout the week as these negotiations continue. In fact, one of his most senior aides, uh, who typically doesn't go on these international trips, typically does more of the domestic trips. He is actually on hand on this trip with President Biden to kind of uh, serve as the communicator between the negotiations going on here and getting that information to the president. But look, each side has said that they do not want to have the United States default on its debts for the first time in history. That would lead to catastrophic economic consequences. But they still have to hammer out how exactly they are going to come together when it comes to getting a budget agreement. Uh, we've heard a few of the sticking points that have been coming up in those negotiations, including having these work requirements for social safety net programs, something that the House Speaker said he really, really wants, uh, something that the White House, uh, the president has said that he's not open to work requirements that would take away health care, uh, but left some wiggle room for some possible other concessions. But look, these uh, negotiators have a very tall order at hand trying to come up with a deal uh, within the next two weeks. And let's not forget, it takes a long time to move legislation up on Capitol Hill. It has to go through the House, it has to go through the Senate. They have to get all of their members on board. This is likely going to need to be a bipartisan deal in order for it to get passed. But this also is a very serious challenge for President Biden on the world stage as he heads uh, to that G7 summit without a deal at hand, as the uh, potential default would not just have major ramifications here in the U.S., but it would have ramifications on the global economy. So that is something that is likely to come up uh, in these meetings 
with leaders and he will have to offer assurances uh, that the U.S. will be able to avoid a default. Yeah, some of these spending measures, though, it does feel like um, sort of rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic mm -hmm. when you're talking about $31 trillion worth of debt. But I think you get the quote of the show. We may or may not be one day closer to a deal. We are undoubtedly one day closer to a default without it. Um, mm -hmm. Alec, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. OK, coming up after the break, creating jobs and fueling economic growth. Now, new data shows which countries have the most entrepreneurs. This enterprising index from commerce platform Shopify after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Data collected from millions of entrepreneurs all around the world has been pulled together for the first time in a global index measuring their economic benefits. The information was collated by Shopify, the global commerce platform that says it's effectively a one-stop shop for retailers selling online and beyond. Take a look at some of these highlights. No surprises, perhaps, that the United States tops the list, considering the sizable presence Shopify has on that market. But just take a look at the numbers on the right of your screen, and you'll notice the Czech Republic has the highest rate of job growth. You'll see it's up nearly 34% year-on-year. Then the strong export growth in Japan, that's up nearly 30% in a year. Then compare and contrast with China, exports by Shopify sellers there are down 19%. And as you can see, the other indicators from that nation are lower too. Hmm, much to discuss. Harley Finkelstein is the president of Shopify and he joins us now. I absolutely love this index, Harley, and welcome to the show. I think there's a given wisdom that entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs specifically are vital to drive jobs and growth, but it's just tough to quantify the impact. Explain how you did this. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on the show again, Julie. Always great to be back here. As you know, at Shopify, we live and we breathe entrepreneurship. And I think it's clear that entrepreneurs are certainly the backbone of the economy and local communities. They create jobs, they anchor our cities, our towns, but they have a massive impact that goes so much beyond their own business. The problem is there's never really been any type of database that measures the actual impact of entrepreneurship. Uh, so we built one. And, and so now we're early launching the Shopify Entrepreneurship Index. It's going to be a home for data and insights on entrepreneurship across 40 countries and every single U.S. state. And, uh, and we're going to be updating this every single quarter so people can see how things are trending, including where entrepreneurship is booming. And the reason we did this was no, no one really, no one else has a, uh, a list like this, the data like, like we have, because we power millions of stores in the U.S. alone. We have, we have more than 10% of all e-commerce going through Shopify. So we really thought that it would be an important thing to put out there. And the reason we're doing it is because we want to power uh, policymakers, government, media, mm. public with information on how to create more entrepreneurship. Now, one of the things that's fascinating, you, you pointed this out in your introduction, which, which I think you, you hit, hit right on the head, which is that despite a very challenging macro environment right now, entrepreneurship is, is having a renaissance. I mean, in the U.S. alone, there was a record 10 million applications over the last two years for new businesses. That is higher than, than the last 20 years. So there's a lot to be excited by when it comes to entrepreneurship. Yeah, oh, I've got a million questions. Um, is there something that connects to your point about providing this as a tool, perhaps, to see where policies are working, where there's lower wages, perhaps, so you can hire people more easily that connects some of the fastest growing regions? Can, can, you, can you see that already, wherever they are, geographically in the world? 
Certainly. There are countries that are adopting a much more business-friendly climate. So here are a couple examples. Easier access to technology, uh, to high-speed internet, to funding, encouragement from governments, governments that are actually streamlining regulatory processes, like things like just registering a business uh, or patent protection or tax incentives, places where access to capital and where permitting is, is a lot easier, you are seeing more and more entrepreneurs. And, and the results, as you sort of discussed, they're, they're pretty remarkable. The U.S. ranks number one, but after that, you get into uh, some, some other places, which are maybe a little bit less obvious, which, which we should talk about as well. But just focusing on the U.S. for a second, we saw total jobs supported or jobs created, GDP impact and business activity by Shopify entrepreneurs each increased by 11 percent since 2021. And when wow. you expand you know, beyond just U.S., you see countries uh, like in Europe, like Lithuania and Romania, play second and third globally. APAC continues to grow as a hub for entrepreneurship, but four of the top 10 most entrepreneurial countries in the world are actually in Asia, with a significant concentration coming from East Asia and Australia. So it's not just happening in the U.S., it's happening everywhere, but you're certainly seeing places where they're making a concerted effort to really foster entrepreneurship that are seeing the biggest results. Ah, too many questions. <laughs> I want to watch about all of these things. I, I found the, the growth in Eastern Europe fascinating, given the challenges that we've got going there. But now you've just teased me with Asia. Mm -hmm. So we have to talk about that because I think Japan yeah. was one of the ones that really stood out to me and surprised me. And obviously, the, the sort of slowdown that we're seeing in China, just as quickly as you can, because I want to talk about Shopify, sort of compare mm -hmm. and contrast and explain what you're seeing in, in those two places. Yeah, I mean, Japan ranked number 10 globally, and its impact across every single metric uh, that was measured uh, was up. So business activity increased by 24% in Japan. Jobs supported by our entrepreneurs are up 24%, and the GDP impact is up 23%. So I think Japan is doing a really good job of not only fostering entrepreneurship, but making it a lot easier for the businesses and the brands and the retailers in Japan to sell outside of Japan. And, and you know, the proof is in the pudding here. Yeah. Um... It is quite fascinating, to your point, despite a far more challenging funding environment for, for these entrepreneurs, right. and we, you know, we can talk about that, but also the economic environment and the uncertainty there too. Speaking of that, let's talk about Shopify. Let's talk about sure. getting back to the basics, splitting off the logistics business. And you and I talked about that in the past, and particularly during the pandemic, yeah. how important that was, and it's billion dollars worth of investment. I've seen this decision described as, as mature. How do you define the decision? And obviously investors liked it to say, you know what, we spent a lot of money, let's get rid of it and focus on optimizing our core business. Yeah. I mean, look, Shopify is, is world class at building commerce software for entrepreneurs and, and larger businesses as well. And I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if you look at the results, 2023 started off incredibly strong for Shopify and our merchants. In Q1, revenue was up 25%. GMV was up 15%, accelerating from Q4. You're also seeing even larger brands like Zoo Lily and Glossier and Mattel and Heinz and Ted Baker and Mirror by Lululemon, Athletic Greens also coming to Shopify as well. So in terms of our core metrics, all those were up. Our attach rate, which measures the actual usage of our products by our merchants, has, is the highest it's ever been. So these are incredible results. And we also showed operational discipline on the bottom line. We were cash flow positive for this quarter and we provided guidance will be cash flow positive each and every quarter this year. But I also, in terms of the, the logistics piece, Shopify really wants to create less friction for entrepreneurship and for small businesses and larger businesses. And when we announced logistics and our, our shipping product back in 2018, there was nobody else doing it. We felt like if we didn't do it for our merchants, they would have to do it for themselves. And we're always in a better position because of our economies of scale. So at the time, it felt like it was the right thing to do. 
But that really was never our, our main focus. It was never our main quest. It was always a side quest. And as we began to work with Dave Clark and, and Ryan over at Flexport, we begin to realize that they can do this faster and more effectively because that is their main quest. Shipping and logistics is all they think about. And so by selling our logistics business to them, it gets us to focus back on our core competency, which is software and, and building software for commerce. And it allows our merchants to get the shipping and fulfillment that, uh, that we were trying to build for them. So it's been a, it's a great deal, but it also allows us to focus in a way that, that we think is very important. Yeah. I mean, if it's additive to the business and it reduces costs and it works, see them fine. If it doesn't, hand it over to somebody else and, and, and get back to basics and the priorities. Um, and, and, and the basics are super important. You know, the basics of course. Are important. I mean, today, we, we, we actually just released a study today from a big three global consulting management consulting firm that shows that Shopify's checkout converts 36% better than competitors like Salesforce and 15% on average. Our checkout's the best checkout on the internet. That's the stuff that we are the best in the world at. And that's why we're so optimistic about the future of this company. <laughs> I love your enthusiasm. All right. I have about 45 seconds because you squeezed the last answer. Okay. AI. How is that going to transform yeah. the business? Be specific, because I hear a lot of vague chat sure. on AI. Okay, so, so uh, our view of AI is all about practicality. How does it actually make the lives of businesses better, easier, and more effective? So we're embedding AI into things like product description. So when you're starting a store on Shopify or you're building a store, instead of having to write your own product description, AI, using AI, you're actually going to be able to provide a much better product description that ChatGBT is going to power for you. Another example is shop.ai, which anyone can go to, which is this incredible concierge. If you're planning a party with a particular theme, it'll suggest exact products for you. So we think AI is a great technology, but what matters to Shopify is how does it make the lives of entrepreneurs better? And so the practical part of it is what matters most to us. If you ever move on from Shopify, you can be a diction teacher because I, I swear your word per minute count is the highest of any of the guests on the show. I'm trying to keep up with you, Julia. I know, I love it. Harley, it's great to chat to you. Thank, Thank you, Julia. Always a pleasure. The president of Shopify there. Welcome back to First Move. Forbes announcing its annual 30 Under 30 Asia list, featuring young people who are driving positive change and innovation all across the region. And the list is broad, from insurance solutions in India, K-pop bands from South Korea, to a mental health advocate in Hong Kong. And these young people are powerful. They have a combined 220 million followers across social media and have raised an estimated $1.6 billion worth of funding, according to Forbes. And joining us now is Rana Webby. Watson, Special Projects Director at Forbes Asia. Rana, welcome to the show. This is very exciting. And I know you've been doing this now for eight years. I think what surprises me most is the sheer breadth and level of innovation, despite the fact that we know economic conditions are challenging. And, and it's tough to get money for some of these young people. That's right, Julia. Thank you for having me. Uh, exactly. You mentioned uh, the um, founders on this year's list, which account for about 70% of the 300 people uh, on the list, have uh, raised a total of $1.6 billion in funding this year. But last year, for example, while the re some parts of the region were still uh, dealing with the pandemic, they have raised, uh, the, the batch of last year had raised $3 billion. So funding has definitely gone down, but innovation hasn't. As, as a result, we actually see uh, people aiming less, entrepreneurs aiming less to create uh, one product or one app to be uh, for everything, for everyone, everywhere, and are instead actually focusing on uh, core products uh, that are local in their markets and that they can develop and grow from there. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, we're just looking at the numbers. Um, it's fairly evenly split um, between China, Japan, South Korea and Singapore. But way out in front is India. What's driving that? And, and just give us a flavor of, of some of the entrepreneurs that you were, you were seeing there. I mean, one of the ones that stood out to me, Loop Health, healthcare insurance in India. Yes, that's right. India has been uh, dominating uh, the list for the past few years. Uh, it was China to start with. And then as the uh, gadget and consumer product market uh, gone down, and, and now we see more trends into uh, uh, people trying to build more software, India is, is back on the rise. Mm. Uh, and it is, of course, now the most populous country in the world. So it's no surprise. But we do see uh, Indians across all uh, the categories that we have on the list doing Many great things. Uh, you mentioned Loop Health, uh, which is trying to um, make healthcare, uh, uh, healthcare insurance more accessible to people. We also have people who are uh, creating uh, tech companies, but not uh, the ones that we're used to during the pandemic, where you actually give the lessons online. They're actually believers in uh, offline learning, one-to-one, -one, but they're using technology as a software, as an app to connect uh, students to connect uh, parents who want to um, uh, track the progress of their um, of their kids. So there's a really interesting way in looking at tech, not just as an end result, but actually as a way to make things more convenient. Yeah, and also learning from what the challenges that we saw during the pandemic and trying to optimize in terms of education is, um, it seems very obvious, but vital that we do this and we do it fast. Um, AI, we have to talk about yes. AI. Sort of everywhere yes. you look, the, the physical use of it rather than just vague references was something else that leapt out at me. Yes, and I was listening to your conversation earlier. Uh, AI uh, was featured 32 out of the 300 uh, founders on our list are actually using AI as a big part of their um, uh, companies. I'll give you examples uh, from Japan, for example, one of the companies using AI to analyze images to assess quality control, something that had been done manually. So they're really cutting the time by about 95%. Uh, we also have usage of AI in uh, farming and agriculture, mm. uh, creating uh, a software that could analyze the crops and help farmers. Um, there is AI, as uh, actually uh, Harley mentioned, uh, uh, creating product descriptions, which is funny he mentioned it because we there is a company uh, on the 30 on the 30 Asia list in Singapore doing exactly that. It's doing a specific product that helps uh, uh, companies uh, who are retailers and content creators produce content and better product uh, descriptions using AI. So yes, AI Marketing. is everywhere. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, I, and, I, and it's just the beginning. That's, that's how we see it. We agree. And I would be very remiss if I didn't mention that our very own Selena Wang was mentioned in this as well. So to congratulations to her. Um, Rana, great to have you on. Thank you so much for the list and joining us to talk about it today. The Special Projects Director at Forbes Asia there. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.